The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This episode contains language and content of an explicit nature. Listener discretion is advised. Before a song is released, a record is produced, or a chorus is written, the musicians that write them think a lot. They live a lot, and they feel a lot. Before the chorus dives into the stories and experiences that shape these artists, and ultimately, the music we hear. I'm your host, Sophia Lepercaro, and this episode's guest is Julian Baker. Julian Baker is an artist from Memphis, Tennessee. She is known for both her solo work and as a member of the bands Forrester and Boy Genius. Her 2015 record Sprained Ankle rose her to fame with its gut-wrenchingly honest songwriting. On Little Oblivions, her third full-length album, Julian explores themes of addiction and relapse, mental health, and faith, never mincing her words. Please note that we discuss the aforementioned issues at length in this episode. If this will be triggering for you, you are welcome to skip this one. Let's try and keep it in a way that it's, we're not commiserating, but rather by sharing, we're creating something healing for other people. Let's go in with that intention. Perfect. Setting those intentions. Let's, Let's jump in. Okay. So, um, as you've been super, super open about, this album does deal mainly with relapse in addition to, like, mental health and everything, and mm-hmm. it's very much um, a fuck you to one's ego, in a sense. It's not, like, um, it's accepting that to go through these things is kind of a gut punch to your ego. hmm Yeah, I, I mean... Yeah, I don't know. It it's funny because I or I guess it's not funny. Maybe it's interesting. Um that in releasing this record, like I didn't fully know what the intention behind disclosing all of these things about myself was because on some level it's like and I worry about this in interviews too, like there's only so much self-criticism you can do without it coming off like an invitation for validation or like you know what I mean or like Mm -hmm. some kind of manipulation and so I'm really wary about that now because I feel like even when I try to answer questions honestly in interviews and like expound upon the lyrics that I wrote about the most hurtful mistakes I've ever made or like the parts of my personality that I really hate I'm not like I wonder if that comes across like martyry and there's really no other way to do it though like you know what I mean um there's no other way to like be honest about myself without that possibility of it being perceived that way kind of looming overhead but i don't know it's still (laughs) it's an ongoing process the the ego death yeah and i mean at the end of the day you know as much as this gets released into the public that's not sort of your your responsibility you have to speak in your own speak in your own truth i guess and i was reading an interview that i think that like the the boy genius girls and obviously in addition to yourself had done And Lucy Dacus was mentioning that she, through you, learned the value of sometimes just writing out things plainly. Like, it's not like you're trying to create some redemptive arc in the music. It's like, this is just the kind of crap that I'm dealing with, and I'm going to write it, I'm going to put it out here, and I'm going to allow myself to sit in it in a way that's healthy. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that she would say that about my music, because I feel... 
and maybe it's just because the art is after all you know closest to me and exists in my brain so of course I'm analytical about it but I've been thinking about my previous two records in addition to this one and I feel like there was a period in my life where I had released my first record and it was I mean that record's pretty bleak um those were the things that I was feeling and the emotions that I wanted to document um and then I put it out into the world and for the first time in my life you know people besides the like 10 kids at a house show cared about it and then I started to feel extremely culpable like as an artist who now had whatever a power whether that means like purely fiscal or like having some kind of social currency or a platform or uh, credibility as an artist like I now had um power more power to shape my world than I had ever imagined myself having and so like for a long time I think I tried to retroactively do the work of imbuing those songs with meaning because I felt unconstructive to just contribute something sad into the world with no follow-up um and I don't know maybe with this record and in talking about it I'm learning you know that sometimes it is okay just to like feel an emotion I feel like there's so many political like um let me say that different i feel like there are so they they feel or it feels like there's so much pressure when you're entering a discourse especially like in the realm of the social or the political that there's a pressure to have an alternative if you point out a problem or if you criticize something there it like needs to be constructive and I but you know I'm starting to learn that I don't think criticism or like discontent and mourning are the same thing and there's a lot of space that needs to be made for mourning just like there's space that needs to be made for celebration even though it feels like that's few and far between these days it's mostly morning yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah 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 I mean as much as you know I'm happy to see like movements towards people not only writing about their pain but also writing about joy like last year Fleet Foxes released Shore which was like a great album for again healing and happiness but I think that both need to continue to exist you know like Art serves so many different purposes and even just being able to recognize what you've been through and then for someone then to hear the same thing and be like, I've also felt that. And so knowing that someone else has the same fears, has the same trauma as me, can in its own way be really healing. No, totally. And I mean, I've um, I've been thinking about this a lot too, like what purpose does music serve um what purpose does music serve in my life and in like the greater like um social context and I feel like it's just a communication tool and it's really hard to remember that when I feel like again and again especially now our art is being framed more and more as like entertainment or so like all of the art that we engage with in a consumerist context is presented to us as entertainment that we can own in some way or that is to like serve us and I really have been struggling with that as a musician who loves music for music's sake and loves songwriting because it is at its core a communication method you know like 
but I don't know, I guess, wow, there's so many different directions you could go with that. Mm -hmm. I'm trying not to like try to quantify the worth of my art so much. Um, Art in quotation marks, because it's like, what is art? Everything's art. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying not to quantify the worthiness of it in like a using the metric of capital or like how much other people like it but trying to just remember that it's worthy because it is fulfilling for me and it is a process by which I understand myself and better understand others and I'm better seen and witnessed by others but yeah man it's hard (laughs) sorry I usually I'll just punctuate something like that with yeah man I don't know (laughs) Just tag, just tag that onto the it's end. Like, and be welcome like, oh. to life. It's complicated, <laughs> yeah. and you get lost until you're like, it's hard, and then that's <laughs> it's hard. That's, that's it. Yeah. Well, add it. I guess sort of switch it in another direction. I I t- go on tangents and pivot as effortlessly as as like yeah. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> I was watching your interview with Tom Power on CBC, who is a legend. He's awesome. Um, and you guys were talking in particular about being sober as a public figure and the sort of weight that can come with that. And maybe two days before I watched that, I started watching the Demi Lovato documentary, um, and she was talking about the exact same thing, you know, how... We love Demi in this house, Yes, Good. <laughs> that's a good thing but, um yeah but yeah like this idea that you almost have to become like a poster child for sobriety so it can feel like there's literally no room to fuck up yeah 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 um and i wonder because i think that i returned to substances for a very different reason than I thought I did you know I think I it it felt very reactionary to me to like decide I don't want to be straight edge anymore because at the same time as I'm questioning why I got sober in the first place I was reevaluating literally every other value that governs my life so why not this one too um and I, I thought that it was, like, me trying to liberate myself from a very, from all these, like, stringent parameters of who I was allowed to be and what I was allowed to do. And I was like, why can't I just be a person that goes to the bar on Friday with my friends? Um but very quickly it's like it was actually I realized that there was something way more reactionary about it I don't know I remember it was maybe it was three years ago a couple of years ago just since you bring up Demi Lovato it was like the saddest thing when she had to be hospitalized for an overdose not because I mean a because a person's life was in danger because they were embroiled in a self-destructive like relationship with substances I've been there but two the only thing I could think about was like I don't know the the personal devastation for you that you have to experience when you're Demi Lovato (laughs) you know it's like you're like regularly at the Grammys and sell millions of records and uh, uh, so many more people are aware of you than I could even comprehend and you set a goal for yourself or maybe not even for yourself but you like she I'm assuming because I don't know anything (laughs) about her I've never met her got um sober for her own health because she wanted to stay alive which is I feel like why most people end up getting sober and then was open about it in interviews and became yeah like a representative for healing 
who now it's like not only her own healing that was at stake or her own safety it's like you know her and it's like she didn't even get a chance to consent or not consent to being people's um totem that like represents their own struggle and in which in a person who people invest a lot into um and like I don't know it's just it's painful yeah I don't know I I oh gosh <laughs> I, I got way off track there talking about like no you're good Demi Lovato. yeah <laughs> it's actually pretty much where I was going with things anyway because I I was thinking about this the other day and as much as there's still stigma around mental health in general I think people tend to be more understanding of like anxiety relapses or depressive relapses Yet, when it comes to addiction, it feels like a relapse is far more demonized, if that makes sense. Because, like, healing, for one, is never linear. And also, life isn't a perfect, like, uphill, you know? Like, you could lose a person you love one day or have something happen in your life. And then you have to rebuild yourself. And life is just this constant up and down of that. But when Mm -hmm. it comes to addiction, it doesn't feel like there's really an understanding of that. Yeah. It's really I'm and I would say I don't think that I even did a good job for the many years I was sober and talking about it in interviews. I don't think that I had a well, no one ever will, I guess, but I don't think I had a very good understanding of the power of addiction. Um because when I was f- when I first decided to become sober, I was an underage person with limited financial resources and limited um, restricted access to substances. I had to have like a third party bring them to me, right? It's And so like specifically with alcoholism, I had never been in the context of like I had never experienced the constant availability somewhere like I don't know, East Nashville, where everything is a bar, coffee shops sell beer, haircut places sell beer. You know what I mean? It's like every <laughs> everywhere sells beer. Um, but I, I think I, for a long time, was working with the understanding of addiction as something that you, like, use your mental fortitude or the strength of your own will to overcome. And... I you know, not least of all because I viewed my sobriety a lot through the lens of, like, straight-edge culture, which has a lot of weird hang-ups with, like, or a lot of weird similarities with purity culture and, like, a <laughs> Like the say-no-to-drugs, like, PSAs yeah, and that kind yeah. of shit. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, well, there's say-no-to-drugs. I mean, I don't even want to talk about the war on drugs because I'll be here for an hour, but, yeah, the way yep. that, like... Um, but th- there's that, and then there's, like, this much more insidious version of it in hardcore, where sobriety is, like, a choice and expression of strength, of, like, willpower and conviction, and it's very, more like, morally superior um, to people who use d- drugs. Um, not always. But a lot of the time it is. And I think I looked at my former self who used substances as something that I needed to, like, conquer and subdue instead of something that I needed to be compassionate with. And when I spent 2019 (laughs) deep, deep in the belly of (laughs) substance abuse, it was like... I don't know. I, it was humbling um, because it turns out that addiction is sometimes much more powerful than you are by yourself. And the havoc it wreaks on the brain and the way it, it, even the way it changes your brain chemistry is just as difficult to deal with as mental illness. And I think the thing is like, People think you have way more agency in it because you can decide to drink. 
maybe you don't decide to have a panic attack or you don't decide to have a dis- depressive episode, but you can decide to buy a handle of whiskey, right? Um, but yeah, it's almost as if like I, so I also ex- experience, um, obsessive compulsive disorder and, uh, yeah, I don't know, those two things like compulsion and addiction are really tied up and similar to me, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know if you felt that way before. Yeah, I think I don't have, I never had like addiction in the manifestation of substance abuse per se, but there's definitely, I don't know, like a sort of like tight grip that you have on certain activities or certain thoughts where it's like, I cannot let this go. And so in the sense it is similar. No, yeah. I mean, honestly, I think addiction driven behavior and obsessive compulsive disorder are, I don't know, they have similarities (laughs) like I would almost consider them cousins because before like when I was straight edge and vegan and absolutely no chemicals went into my body and I wasn't like um using substances that like changed my perception or changed my like neurochemistry whatever I um I was still obsessive, like, I would freak, I I used to be, like, obsessed with running, like, if I couldn't run, I would freak out, or I was, like, obsessed with my macros, or, like, what I was eating that day, or, like, you know, I've just cycled through so many things and thought processes that become so compulsive for me that it almost feels like I don't have power over them, um, and that's how addiction feels, you know, it's, they're very similar, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, sort of, again, pivoting a little bit, but still staying on the same topic for a short period more before we move on. Um, there's a line in Hardline that I feel like sort of shows an overarching sentiment across the record in regards to sort of uh, some of the fears that come with addiction. And it's also a line that is similarly sort of repeated. Like it's maybe rephrased but comes back again and again in its own way throughout the record um and it's a line start asking for forgiveness in advance for all the future things i will destroy and then later on repeat there's also the line all my greatest fears turn out to be the gift of prophecy and i get the sense that it's sort of this idea of being afraid the future is going to look like the past yeah wow Yeah, (laughs) I have never heard it articulated in that way, but you are correct. Um, Yeah, and I guess it's almost like a disclaimer that I'm constantly making that I feel like I've been making for a long time until it finally came true, (laughs) which is that I'm going to ruin everything, like all my relationships, my friendships and stuff. Like, I feel like I'm constantly... I don't know. I see it's that kind of it's that thing I was talking about um at the top of the interview where it's like I don't want to say that because it's true, but I don't want to say it because it seems so like I don't know, contrived, but I do honestly have a deep fear that I'm going to destroy everything around me. Um, or that I'm going to somehow be incapable of being stable again and I'm going to drive everyone away or, you know, so many of these things that have happened in my past that I've seen myself capable of doing, I am going to repeat. And so it's like this disclaimer, um, absolving me from the blame of having misrepresented myself, you know, like I don't... (laughs) Nobody can ever really be like, you're not who I thought you were because I've (laughs) spent three records being like, I'm bad and, or I'm not bad, but, um, it's like, I do hurtful things. I'm a human being. And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. It, It feels like some weird sort of safety measure for me. 
had to be like, I promise you, I'm gonna do something messed up over the course of our relationship. Please do not expect otherwise. You will be disappointed. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, that's yeah. dark, but yeah. No, I understand it because I used to say something somewhat similar to my friends when I was younger, which was, whatever you think that I'm doing wrong, I'm well aware that I'm doing it and I'm kicking myself oh. in the head for it. I used to yeah. say that a lot. Luckily, I've since realized how unhealthy that is. But also yeah. in this line, there's something that I think I really recognized as a fellow person with OCD, which is that while it's normal that to have fuck ups in your life and it's not to say don't acknowledge and, you know, own up to those. But OCD, one of the things that it does is it takes the things that you care about the most, the values that you care about the most and mirrors them and turns them into the complete opposite. So often, like, people who are, like, have OCD fears about being violent or harming a person are some of the most gentle, kind people ever who would never even consider doing something close to that. So on one hand, you know, I hear you, again, owning up and wanting to own up, but on the other hand, I also see that, like, you're probably not the person that your OCD or your depression can make you think that you are. This is true. And I honestly relate to that a bunch, like just specifically with intrusive thoughts about accidentally hurting someone or like now I'm thinking about something like, oh, my God, like maybe a more um, convoluted fear. Like, oh, my God, what if I relapse again and put my friends through a lot of emotional labor and uh pain and um I think part of what f fed the like really painful cycle in 2019 that I was in was like I don't know the intrusive thoughts about being a bad person felt so terrifying because they hadn't yet come to fruition and it was almost like this reactionary destruction of everything to not like prove something to myself, but just to go ahead and have it over with, to have the waiting until everything in my life blows up be over with and to make like at least have agency in the destruction of my life instead of watch it become gradually destroyed by things I believed were outside of my control. But, like, yeah, honestly, the description of uh, OCD mirroring the things that you most love and you most care about, so, so true. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I've actually been, like, um, theoretically, like, the specific, like, focus of my obsessiveness is, like, scrupulosity. So it's, like, really tied up in religion or, I guess, just in faith but like yeah I feel like an unfortunate thing that OCD can do is not only like m mirror the things you love and care about and make you think that you're giving your energy to something that you're passionate about or that you consider important when you're actually giving time and energy to obsession it also almost like inevitably makes it's like shooting yourself in the foot like all of the obsessive behaviors that I tried to subdue or escape um because I was afraid of being a bad person ended up making me a more hurtful person you know what I mean mm -hmm. I was so afraid of becoming hurtful of being toxic of being a bad person that it like manifest it became like a self-fulfilling oh. prophecy yeah no I I get that and I find that one of the things that's actually been really healing for me it's sort of the hack of that is that the more those fears come up you can kind of tell yourself oh that it means that I care about this thing and it sort of mm -hmm. allows you to take the power back the more that it mm -hmm. bothers you the more that you're like but clearly I'm mm -hmm. not this. And it's not perfect. Yeah. Again, OCD is a very insidious thing. I know it well, but <laughs> it's it definitely helps to think that way and it helps you to find space and be kinder to yourself and totally give yourself the bandwidth to both make mistakes, but also see your value as a human being and see totally. the good that you're capable of. So yeah. Now, sort of on this topic, another sort of section of the record that really hit me like a ton of bricks because it was another like bingo same 
<laughs> moment. There's a line in Faith Healer, um, which is, I miss the high, how it dulled the terror and the beauty. Now I see everything in startling intensity. And again, as someone who, same, same realm of OCD and depression, I'm a very deeply feeling person. Sure. People sometimes don't realize how, like, on the sort of spectrum of emotions, once again, kind of talking about the idea of a mirror, that the heaviest emotions and the most kind of joyful, vibrant emotions are very intertwined with each other, where if you start to cut one off, you start to cut the other off. Or if you accept one, you accept the other. And Mm -hmm. this line for me really hit that on the head. It's knowing that one comes with the other and not knowing how to deal with that. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, that's inevitably what you're sacrificing with you know, in certain substances more than others do this literally, but the the dampening of emotion is, like, honestly what you're after, but the thing, or what uh, I was after, or what a person with addiction, uh, who struggles with addiction might be after, but yeah, it's, I mean, I remember writing that line, I wrote that line, like, years before I relapsed and I usually don't use that word but it it is what happened but um yeah it's (laughs) and it's super I don't know it feels very defeatist to say like I would rather use something that dulls both my joy and my pain because the pain is so overwhelming but honestly, I feel like that's a place where a lot of people get to, where joy seems inaccessible and pain seems overwhelming. And so it doesn't seem like that much, like you're forfeiting that much to preclude yourself from experiencing joy and stability, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, I know because I've done that to myself. And yeah, I've sort of gotten to the point where in my own life, I've unlocked the Pandora's box because I want to be an emotional person. I want to feel deeply. Um, But it means that you do get the sort of kickback that comes from that. And I have the great Mm -hmm. fortune of seeing a therapist who really helps me unpack that. And I think everyone should see a therapist because it's the best. Um, It's literal (laughs) magic. Shout out to my therapist. Yay! (laughs) Therapists are the best people. Thanks, therapist i was gonna say her name but that feels like a weird invasion of privacy i was gonna say also dude therapy what's so frustrating about therapy is like it's basically just having someone you trust tell you shit you already know and can't accept like when i was for like i've been to like many stages and levels of therapy but i was in group therapy for quite a long time and 2019 and I remember being like this is stuff that is obvious why didn't anybody tell me this before like why hasn't somebody just taken the time to sit me down and be like feelings aren't facts you know what I mean like (laughs) that's the greatest buzzword or buzzword buzz statement of therapy but it's true it's true yeah I know and it's like it almost turns me off to it because I for so long like as much as I publicly was like an advocate for um mental health and for like destigmatizing uh, mental illness when I found myself in the context of therapy every single thing that got said to me I was like this is lame like I was like didn't want to take it seriously because I was like I've already seen this on like some ad for a meditation app or something and like I don't buy it yeah but it's like honestly I believe this is my um this is my harebrained theory about cheesy therapy acronyms or like cheesy therapy um aphorisms is that half of it half of the value of those concepts and ideas is that they're true and they're useful and the other half is that there is an ego death and humility involved in letting yourself 
take things seriously like that. Like, I can't even tell you how many times I've been a part, like, in group therapy where everyone is mocking group therapy, but then you're all still, like, there. And you have to do the thing because you actually do want to get better, even if it's, like, painful to be vulnerable enough to take, I don't know, my, the concept of mindfulness seriously. Or, um, yeah, it's it's to teach us, like, you know, humility and also, like, I mean, it kind of gets you to accept the part of yourself that is childlike, too, because so much of adulthood is sold to you as like a hardening or like a strengthening of of being able to endure things that are difficult or painful or uh, just harsh realities and allowing yourself to access a childlike place I think is also really healthy Mm -hmm. but anyway I could talk about therapy for like oh same and it is true like as much as it's tacky or not as it is tacky it can seem tacky it is so magical and ironically sometimes when you let yourself kind of dig to the root of things and dig into Mm -hmm. find basically the bottom of where your trauma is because my especially when I first started really unpacking a lot of my depression issues that's where we went like it was let's figure out the root of this what is it that you're really scared of and by yourself oh god you don't want to do that but then when you do it in therapy once you finally get there It's kind of like when you're getting a massage and someone's like, you could feel the knot in your muscle and it suddenly pops. Like, it goes from extreme pain to, oh, wait, no, I feel better about this now. It's like, yeah, surprisingly. And the thing about it, like, popping or, like, I don't want to be lame and use, like, an extended metaphor, but I think I'm going to. So I ran compulsively. Now I try to run in a healthy way and give myself off days and stuff, but I ran so much on tour that I injured myself really badly, but it was just that I had like this, like something wrong with the muscles on my back, but because of where they were, my back didn't hurt at all. Like it was like pushing on a nerve or something and my leg was hurting and I didn't know until I went to a chiropractor. I was like, no, my, my leg is the thing that hurts. I think I've Uh, screwed up my iliotibial band or whatever my hamstring one of those guys and um when I finally saw a doctor who like knows how the body works he was like no it's in your back but like it's it seems like the pain is coming from your leg and I wonder if it's not like at least for me I do a similar thing with emotional pain I'm like oh wow I'm hurt Or I'm angry because X, and that's not really why. That's just, like, the most convenient excuse for me to hinge all my negative emotions on. Um, And oftentimes it's, like, the... It's it's disorienting, but knowing where the pain is actually coming from is the only way to, like, effectively treat it. Because I could have kept stretching my leg... um, for months and months and it wouldn't have started to feel better at all because I wasn't addressing what was causing the problem mm-hmm. um what's up running metaphors they're my specialty hey <laughs> um, put that yeah. on a poster we might need a really small font size but we can definitely put that on a poster <laughs> yes <laughs> there you go elementary schools across the United States get ready for the next inspo poster that's gonna be on your walls oh my god <laughs> Uh, uh, I go I was gonna say remember, I remember those times. <laughs> yeah, me too. I was like, how how are you gonna hit the ball if you're thinking of all the possible ways you can miss? Yeah, it's the, you're gonna miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Shots it's you don't take. Like, yeah, yeah. We've all seen that in the like early two thousands in our elementary school classrooms. Just staring furiously <laughs> at the detention wall, looking at all the cheesy inspirational posters. That was yeah. me. At detention every damn day. Yes. <laughs> so or like bad. or like the laminated, I don't know, crayon with Sharpie on it and shit. Like uh, bad. Bad. Good times. Yeah. Good good times, y'all. Magical <laughs> times to remember. Well, um, before we sort of cap <laughs> off this section with everything that we've just said, like 
the title Little Oblivions, is that sort of the quiet space that you're trying to create, like, when you feel like you need to escape? Because I kind of read it that way. Um, not to make it darker or be uh, confrontational, because, you know, however you take it is how it is, you know, it's subjective art, but, um, it's actually, like, when we think about motivations for uh, suicide or indifference to recovering from addiction um, I guess what or any avoidant behaviors avoidant behaviors like going to sleep or avoidant behaviors like feeling like your anxiety is like pinning you to your couch and you can't do anything except for stare at a wall like essentially these are all ways to like put ourselves in an unfeeling oblivion into like you know when you say something gets smashed to oblivion um you're talking about this like theoretical space of existing or like non-existing you're talking about a state of non-being because the state of being is as it turns out fraught with suffering and really difficult so like all of the things that give us the temporary oblivion that is so scary in the context of like death um because it's final you can sort of achieve a temporary oblivion with whatever it is that you're Using substances, avoidant behavior, I don't know, sex, relationships, validation, power, your job, anything. Um, and I don't know, I spent a lot of time constructing places where I could retreat into a, the oblivion of non-feeling. And wondering why I was doing that. Um, what purpose that was serving or like what it was protecting me theoretically protecting me from um so yeah that's what th <laughs> that's kind of what this song is about um yeah well, it kind of floats around in the record yeah yeah well kind of getting into the final section and hopefully somewhere that's a little more hopeful and stuff sure. too <laughs> yeah because yeah. we we deserve that um we do <laughs> we do now i mean this question begins with a sort of, well, like, questioning and things becoming deconstructed, but it kind of ends with more of a, where are we now and more, like, where can we go? So, one of the things, like, again, you talked about, um, what's it? Scrupulosity? Scrupulosity, yeah. Cool, I remember the word. I'm proud of myself. I don't, you did remember the word. That's pretty crazy. I um, know. I'm impressed with myself. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. You probably are. That sounds pretty correct to me. But, <laughs> again, this is another section of the album that I very much understand because I grew up Roman Catholic and have kind of gone into, oh. luckily, a very different version of Roman Catholic than you see in the Bible Belt because Montreal, where I'm from, faith is sort of held in arm's length and even the private catholic school that i went to had like queer charities coming in to talk to us so it was like very awesome. much yeah i know it was like luckily i i got to grow up an ally i have my parents are also allies like it's we're all pretty on a good page thank god but i somewhere in my life became an atheist went through depression existential depression as an atheist which can sometimes feel like you have nothing to grip onto which is fun um but i know that like definitions of faith and stuff have been something that have moved around in your life but from some things i've heard it sounds like you're starting to find some of your own agency with it maybe and like I remember reading somewhere the idea of being good just for the sake of being good and giving yourself just the option to do things for yourself. You can still believe in a higher power, but giving yourself some individuality in there as well can be really nice. Yeah, um, totally. It's been really challenging, um... And yeah, when you when you talk about the idea of being good, or I don't know, I try to, sometimes I use those words, but they can be 
interpreted in a lot of different ways, but like being kind, being kind for the sake of being kind, um, and trying to do the least harm you can to others and repair the harm you may have already done as much as you can for the sake of that being how you want to treat other human beings. Um, I think it's a lot more fulfilling to do that when it's not motivated by fear of damnation or disappointing an almighty God figure. Uh, but yeah, I do. I feel like I have right now, you know, I mean, things change, but I feel like I've been able to reevaluate my faith and sit with it in a healthier way. Um, where, yeah, it's like, I do, I do have a lot more agency not that I ever felt like I didn't, but now it's just, like, very, very much, or I guess it has less to do with fear, um, which I think is a, almost invariably a really dangerous thing to use to motivate people. Um, a bit, just sure. just a little dangerous, yes. Just a little bit, yeah. So um, there's a few examples from history, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's like, I don't know, I there is something, I don't know, and to think of it this way, I kind of had to stop externalizing God. And that's a scary thing at first, because you are taught, especially in the faith tradition I grew up with, you are taught that, like, basically, like, God is good and man is bad. And there is no in-between, except for, like, mediated through a messiah or whatever. Um, but that, the reverse of that, like, all the things you can infer using that logic is that human beings are fundamentally bad. You have no way to be good that comes from inside of yourself. Um, and so you basically spend your entire life disembodying yourself from your intuition and not addressing your feelings and trying to, like, comply with some religious tenet instead of knowing that you have the capacity to be not either but both good and bad and or good and bad to others and, like, choosing to be good. I don't know. I, again, something I feel like I could talk about for a really long time i mean it's basically i just sit here at my desk and listen to music and think about that <laughs> so i mean like... again bingo 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 i i love all that stuff i i've often said you know i believe if if there is a god up there god would be much happier with an atheist who made a point of living their life being kind to other people and fighting for other people than a Christian who lives by the book but hurts other people through a supposed message of sure. God. Well, and it's like... I cannot b uh, bring myself to believe that a two-millennium-old document written by however real you decide to believe the true inspiration of God was to the authors of the Bible. If you believe that that is all that God, if you consider to, uh, if you, you know, bother to consider God as uh, a being that has, like, uh, I don't know, very human, like, cognizance and will, if you bother to imagine God that way and you think that that's all God has to say and that God is done speaking or self-revealing I don't know what to tell you like I, d <laughs> I just don't know what to tell you it's like the same thing with the constitution like if you think that all that has ever been if, if you think that that's all th that there is to say about justice and how to effectively um run a society or like not run it but like exist in society with other people then I'm like I don't know I don't know how to have a further argument because that seems super contradictory to anything that like a Christian person would believe I mean there's the expression like a living God so like where do you think God is living except for 
embodied in other people and how could you think that there's anything there's any higher allegiance you have to god that can't be carried out in the way that you treat human beings like i don't know i i'm here to have this discussion and i often have it in my head but i also don't want to like beat it like i don't know i I've, i could talk about it for so long and i feel like i have the the back catalogs of all this memorized scripture and um that i could choose to deploy in conversations like this and be like well here's why you're all getting it wrong and then it's like dude yeah but why why do i bother to like if i understand that that's a limiting way to speak about god then why would i like feel like i need to prove my rightness within this one limited interpretation of faith yeah if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, again, I could go yeah. on about this stuff for hours and I'm not going to because the listener is going to be like, why are we still here? <laughs> but with all of that, I mean, for one, I'm, I'm really glad that you found that in your own life. I know how destabilizing it is when you're going through it, but mm-hmm. I know that just like any form of pain, whether it be from addiction or mental health or questioning your faith, no matter how imperfect and non-linear it is, you do get to learn things from it that do gradually allow you to be kinder to yourself and give yourself the space and the grace that you need. And at least in some ways, it sounds like you're finding that for yourself. So I'm I'm glad to hear it. And I hope that Thanks. you continue in that direction because you clearly deserve it. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say that everybody deserves it. Um, but I understand the sentiment and thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to be kind. No, you're you know. not. <laughs> Little Oblivions is out wherever you normally get your music. This podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Sophia Lopercaro, and the artwork is by Meg Welford. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.